This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, November 26th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead for this day after Thanksgiving edition of our show, a deep dive into Tolkien. What's really fascinating is you might you you could make a rather solid argument that the one thing as or more amazing than Tolkien's original creation was Christopher Tolkien's stewardship of that because he devoted his career to organizing and slowly publishing mm-hmm. all this creation that his father had done. And a book to help young, reluctant readers. My own experiences as a parent at first, where I'd go into my children's room and try, we would try to read a book before bed. And we would go through all the books and they'd say, I don't want to read this book. I don't want to read that book. And then this is why. And, and a half hour later, you're like, well, we've read nothing and it's time to go to bed. We'll have a book recommendation from Pastor Clint Schneckloth and actor Max Greenfield discusses his new book, I Don't Want to Read This Book. First up this Friday, the Fayetteville City Council recently approved a Natural Environment, Ecosystems, and Climate Resilience Resolution authored by council member and former NOAA scientist Teresa Turk. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich met with Turk at an urban forest preserve, an example of a carbon sink, to bring us this story. Teresa Turk, City Council Ward 4 representative and her trusty black lab, Ellie, hike into Brooks Hummel Forest Preserve, a deeply shaded wild place in the heart of Fayetteville. Can you sit right there? Sure. The oak hickory pine canopy suddenly opens, pouring sunlight onto a low lichen laced limestone outcrop, a perfect spot for an ecological interview. First thing Turk says is that she's encouraged that Fayetteville City Council unanimously approved her broad environmental resolution. Oh, I was delighted. Um, you know, this is uh, this uh, resolution is pretty long and lengthy, but. It's kind of a result of working with a lot of different people within the city and outside of the city. And so I felt like getting all of that information in there was uh, was really important um, to set up and promote the work that others have done uh, in the past. Turk is referring to previous environmental planning, mapping and ordinances, but much more needs to be done now, she says. Well, there is. There's an open space plan and there are, there's an enduring green network map uh, and so there has been a, quite a bit of work that's been done in the past, but we need to update those maps and those assets, those natural assets, and then prioritize them for ecosystem services and conservation. Ecosystem services refers to an array of resources and recreational benefits humans are provided by a healthy natural environment. But moving deep into the 21st century now, it's clear that human activity is gravely impairing the planet. So I worked for NOAA for quite a while as a fishery scientist, um, nationally and internationally, uh, in Alaska, the West Coast, and uh, and then also in uh, West Africa and the Pacific Islands. And so we've been able to see directly um, elements of climate change, um, changes in fish distribution, um, you know, uh, stream erosion, uh, so lots of environmental issues, and and that was my career. So that is that continues to be my passion now that I'm in Fayetteville. 
when the threat of global warming was first realized, the city of Fayetteville implemented a long-range energy plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Well, I think the um, the the energy action plan that was passed in 2018 was phenomenal. was was really an incredible first step. But we need to do more. We need to have um, we need to really. Uh, add more trees and do more things to sequester carbon, to take carbon dioxide outside of the atmosphere. Trees absorb excess atmospheric carbon, or greenhouse gases emitted by coal and wood fire power generation, gasoline engines, and natural gas energy production, which will continue unabated unless drastic alternative measures are taken by nations, states, and municipalities like Fayetteville. Oh, trees do an incredible amount uh, of work. Um, They take in carbon dioxide and convert it to oxygen through photosynthesis, like all plants do. It's just that trees are really particularly effective for that. And we have had a lot of trees in Fayetteville, and we still do in in the state of Arkansas. But in Fayetteville, we're rapidly losing them through development, and some trees are are aging out. So we need to replace them and build upon um, that kind of ecosystem services that we already have here. In 2010, a plan authored by the Fayetteville Natural Heritage Association, adopted by the Northwest Arkansas Council, designated an array of green spaces in the city. So that's a great plan, but there's not much implementation. And in that plan, um, Brooks Hummel is identified, Weddington Woods, and those two areas have been preserved, largely by FNHA, but also in partnership and collaboration with the city of Fayetteville. And so I think that is a really great model um, and that we should extend that to other areas, other sensitive areas within town including the relatively new Kessler Mountain Preserve in southwestern Fayetteville. But more natural areas need to be declared and protected, Turk says, through conservation easements, which limit development. Because they have high ecological value and also value to our citizens, to our residents of of Fayetteville and northwest Arkansas. Turk is also calling for a plan to protect and improve local creek and stream riparian zones, those are lands adjacent to rivers and creeks, to better absorb water during extreme rain events. Climatologists warn that a warming planet is lifting massive amounts of terrestrial moisture into jet streams, forming atmospheric river storms, leading to record floods and mudslides. Oh, the riparian um, zone is very important because we have a lot of stream bank erosion. And if you have uh, trees and you have the appropriate riparian grasses and and bushes, uh, that will stabilize the stream bank. And uh, stream bank destabilization allows a lot of sediment and actually increases the flow of the river and causes all kinds of downstream flooding and problems, uh, especially with our ecosystem, with all that sediment in the water. Turk proposes developing a master plan with public engagement to establish baseline metrics and goals to help sequester carbon and protect the population from the damaging effects of climate change acceleration, as well as aquatic and terrestrial natural urban environments in Fayetteville. In Fayetteville, 
our our particular issue right now is flooding. Is is if we had a big storm system or a hurricane that sat right on top of us for three or four days, like Hurricane Harvey did in Houston, we would experience similar tragedies and and devastation. So we need to be considering those things. Um, conversely, if we had a big drought, how do we address that? Um, that's less likely, but it's certainly possible uh, with climate change. So we need to be thinking like that. We need to be thinking that our environment is changing and how are we going to cope with that in the immediate in the immediate future, but also with our, our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren down the road. So this is the first step or maybe the, uh, the second or the first one and a half steps to moving forward with this because some work has been done, but we need to start implementing those measures and we need to do it now. It's time, Turk says, for the city to track critical ecological services assets into the future. You know, the thing that I really want to, I just want to identify with examples just a little bit more. So things that we could track that I think we need to track are number of impaired streams. How many impaired streams do we have in Fayetteville or close by? Um, number of trees. How many trees do we have? And what is our coverage? How much, what's our, we have an estimate of our carbon sequestration, but we need to update that and we really need to change that. How many miles of impervious surface do we have? So we need to establish those baselines and start tracking and identify ways that we can reduce some of these, um, these challenges or increase our tree canopy. Turk's resolution amended by city council to include an environmental justice component expands public environmental education. City council also approved up to $100,000 in funding to complete a master plan if city staff are not able to conduct that work by early 2024. But what it does not contain is the $100,000 for a long-term land or green space fund uh, and conservation easement fund. I need to go back to the city and lobby again or make a budget amendment uh, in order to get that part funded. Conservation easements serve to protect land with high ecological value at risk of clear-cutting and development. We provide a link to Turk's resolution, Natural Environment, Ecosystems, and Climate Resilience chapter in an existing or future city plan, that's the title, on ozarksatlarge.com. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Walton Arts Center Broadway series will continue next week when the national touring production of Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory starts a six-day, eight-show run on Tuesday night. The story about pure imagination, with darker tones about consumption, greed, and consumerism, is anchored by three protagonists, the titular Charlie, the eccentric Willy Wonka, and Grandpa Joe. Charlie Chaperone for a tour of Wonka's factory. Steve McCoy is Grandpa Joe for this tour, and this month we reached him when the production was in Rochester, New York. I told him I thought Grandpa Joe was the most interesting of the three because he's a mix of skepticism and hope. I think you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, there's a line in the show where Charlie says, um, uh, is Mr. Wonka really going to do that or is he just kidding? And I say a line, I think he might be both. So yes, he has a really willingness to want to believe that this is going on with an underlying skepticism in throughout the whole show. Except the beginning. You know, the, the way we like to talk about the show, it's really two shows in one. The first act is really all about Charlie and his grandfather and the family. 
um, and the golden ticket winners pop in and out. And then the second half is really this fantastical journey through the factory. And it's really kind of two different plays. One's a story about a family and this, you know, down and out kid with all his imagination and dreams for the future and hopes, trying to find what he wants. And then the second act is full of, you know, the fantastical journey. And as soon as Grandpa Joe gets in there, yeah, he's definitely skeptical, but wants to believe really badly. Which sounds like, you know, a great character for 2021. <laughs> Wanting to believe. Oh, but... my gosh. Yes. <laughs> totally. 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 This is such a beloved book, then a beloved film, then it's a beloved musical. I'm going to guess that w- through this tour and through the previous one, you have been on stage in front of some young patrons who might be seeing their first ever live theater. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I think about that every night when the overture starts and I hear those trumpets going, bum, 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 a world of imagination. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's their first experience and what a great show for that. Um, I'm so proud and honored to be a lot of people's first time seeing theater and seeing what theater can do and what it can bring to your imagination and what it can do to your hopes and dreams for the future. Cause I know when I was a kid that, I mean, that's what hooked me. My, my first show I saw, I was like, wow, people actually do this. And then my mom said, and they get paid for it too. And I was like, blown away. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it, yeah, it's an honor. And when I hear the kids laugh in the audience, um, you know, they're uninhibited. They laugh at, you know, parts that we sometimes don't think is funny, that they think is hilarious. And it's really a great feeling to hear that uninhibited laughter and joy coming from the audience. And we hear it every night. Okay, this brings something up I've often wondered about actors in, in national touring productions. Can a, I don't know, San Antonio audience be different than a Rochester, New York audience? I mean, can you hear or feel differences in different cities? Totally. Really? Totally. Totally. You can totally feel differences. Um, um, it depends on what theater is, that city, whether it's just an event that they have a season subscription to that they go to every week and one show might be better than the next, but they go anyway. Or it can be um, a special event, like a couple times, three or four times so far in our cities, we've been the opening show after COVID. Mm. And I got to tell you, the feeling, it, it kind of chokes me up when I talk about it, the feeling in the audience of us being there and them being back for the first time is just really, really magical. Because I can remember, you know, I, I've been doing the show, been involved in it, for three years, you know, we started the tour um, uh, about five or six months before COVID hit. And then we stopped dead after our second week in Detroit. And I was wondering, when we started again, are people going to come back? Mm-hmm. Do people want to put themselves in the situation, albeit very safe, wherever we go? Um, and they've been coming back in droves, to my delight. You know, people have really, really really miss this but the audiences can be very different from town to town very reserved in some places and very boisterous and crazy like we we are in rochester right now 
and we had our opening night last night and the audience went crazy <laughs> for the Oompa Loompas when they first saw them. They, they didn't know what they were going to be, but when they first saw them, they went nuts. And other times it's just like, you always get applause when they come out because it's so fantastical the way they've been created. Um, but you know, yeah, there's definitely a difference from city to city. This, this is a, a story about imagination, obviously, and I don't want you to give anything right. away, but but what we see on the stage is through a choreographer's imagination, a set designer's imagination. You've used the word fantastical a couple of times. How, how without giving away surprises, would you describe what we will see, especially in that second act when we're in the factory? You will see um, as, as much as you can for a stage production rather than a movie, um, the set designers and costume designers interpretation of, I think what they saw in that original film, that original Gene Wilder movie, um, albeit a lot more colorful. Um, you see that room where he brings them in, where everything's made out of edible things. We create that on the stage, the iconic, you know, golden ticket winners, all those bratty children, um, um, their costumes, albeit maybe updated a little, are the ones that you recognize and everything. Um, but the set designer and the costume designers, both who are, are, are award-winning uh, designers, have done an incredible job. Um, we just got a review um, when we opened in Syracuse that uh, you won't see a better physical production you know, than this show. And I, I totally agree. It definitely creates a world that, that is unlike anything you've ever seen before. Oh, that sounds exciting. Finally. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the, one of the major pieces of this uh, work is a golden ticket that, you know, allows you to get this tour. Right. And, you know, right. looking at your resume and the national tours and all the productions you've been in, I wonder if you feel like performing is your golden ticket. Oh, it definitely is. It definitely is my golden ticket. I have been afforded by doing this incredible job that I do. I call it a job, but a lot of times, and I have in my earlier years done it for free or little money, um, just to get to perform. It, it got me opportunity to see the world. Like Fayetteville, say Fayetteville, we're coming to you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not to put anything down, but I don't think a family from New York is going to say, oh, let's go to Fayetteville for our family vacation. But I've been to Fayetteville, and it's an incredible city in places like Des Moines and other places around the country. It's afforded me the opportunity to see these incredible places in our country that a lot of people don't get to see. And, you know, the more I see them, the more I realize that People are just people. They're just like us. People, you know, have these pre- preconceived notions. People from the city are different than people from the country. But, but we're all just people, and it's given me the opportunity to really cement that in my brain, you know. And uh, I feel very honored to get to do what I get to do and get to meet the people that I get to meet. And uh, the cast that I've worked with, especially this one, people say this all the time. Uh, we really are like a big family, you know, and watch out for each other and take care of each other, especially during these times, you know. 
Well, Steve McCoy, enjoy your time in Rochester. We look forward to seeing you uh, with a run that begins later this month at Walton Art Center. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. Steve McCoy is Grandpa Joe in the national touring production of Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The six-day, eight-show run at Walton Art Center begins Tuesday night. You can find out much more at waltonartcenter.org. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum on the square in downtown Bentonville, featuring visits from Santa December 8th, 14th, and 16th from 5 to 8 p.m. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. This is Ozarks at Large with me via Zoom, Courtney Lanning, film reviewer. Courtney, happy holiday season. We're underway. Happy holiday season to you, Kyle. We are in the midst of turkey and galore and more. Well, in the holiday spirit, you're giving us a bonus gift this week, two film reviews. That's right. You know, you, you bought one and had a coupon, so I gave you two reviews this, this week. And I, a little bit of a spoiler alert here for our listeners. You liked them both. I did. I, I am as surprised as you are, Kyle. But <laughs> I have two good reviews for you this week, especially shocking after last week's review. Well, let's start with uh, The Unforgivable. This is a Sandra Bullock movie that's coming to Netflix on December 10th. Uh, and, you know, I've loved Sandra Bullock since I was a little girl. I watched While You Were Sleeping about a thousand times when it came back out in the 90s. Uh, and, you know, this movie shows that Sandra Bullock was born to play powerful, dramatic roles. Uh, the movie is packed with gut-wrenching storylines, and, and they're all done with such attention to detail that reveals how hard Bullock's life as a convict is in this movie. Whoa, Sandra Bullock is in prison? She, she gets out of prison at the start of the movie. The premise is that she was raising her baby sister uh, and she kills a sheriff. And you'll see the circumstances throughout the movie as it unfolds. Uh, and she goes to prison for 20 years. And the movie is just about her getting out and trying to find her sister through the adoption system. Wow. It's, uh, you know, I think for a lot of us, we think Sandra Bullock and we think, you know, like comedy, like you mentioned, um, while you were sleeping or Miss Congeniality, this does not sound like that. No, this is a very hard-hitting film where nothing is really as it seems. There's just, there's a lot of diverging plot points. Uh, they're all meshed together really well. Uh, and it all just highlights how great of an actress Bullock is. All right. Well, and now that I've heard your brief synopsis, the title Unforgivable seems a little bit more ominous. Oh, absolutely. You know, a good chunk of the movie is just her dealing with consequences of what people do to her and how they react when they find out that she went to prison for killing a law enforcement officer. Wow. All right. So you really liked this. I did. You know, this... This will probably end up being on my top 10 films of the year. You know, Philip Martin is the film editor for uh, the Democrat Gazette. He has his critics put together a top 10 films of the previous year every January. And this will probably make my list. All right. So this will be on Netflix in December. 
Right. December 10th, this movie comes out to Netflix. Speaking of December, you also liked a new Christmas movie. Right. And I feel like it's difficult to make a new Christmas classic. I feel like post 2000s, you just don't have a lot of Christmas movies that people just pull up every year. The exception being things like Elf and for some reason, Christmas with the Cranks. (laughs) You know what I love? about talking about movies with you, Courtney, is we're obviously different ages by right. a, two or three <laughs> decades, maybe. It's okay, well, you can say it, Kyle. <laughs> by maybe 30 years. I don't know. I don't know how old you are. But I love that because when, when I'm thinking Christmas classics, I think, oh, what Courtney's going to say is, um, you know, Christmas in Connecticut or Holiday Inn <laughs> or It's a Wonderful Life. But I would also say Elf. Is, is, is among those as well. Well, you know, just drawing that 2000s cutoff line for right. making uh, a Christmas classic. Obviously, you have your your Miracle on 34th Street, right. you know, both versions. And, you know, I obviously we talked about previous weeks. I grew up with Home Alone yes. and Jingle All the Way. And just it's it's more difficult today, I feel like, to make a Christmas classic, air quotes, <laughs> uh, because, you know, it's either too sappy or they, they're trying too hard, the studio is, or they just aren't funny. Uh, but there's a new movie coming to HBO Max. Uh, in fact, it's it's on there right now. You can go watch it. And it's called 8-Bit Christmas. It's a legitimately hilarious movie that I laughed so many times while watching. Oh, okay. I love a, a, a funny Christmas movie. Tell me 8-Bit Christmas. So it's it sounds like it's got something to do with video games. Yeah, so the whole plot of this movie is it's about a group of kids that are trying to get an original Nintendo Entertainment System. It's set in 1988. Uh. And the setup is really good because they have Neil Patrick Harris playing the future version of one of these kids, and he's relaying the story to his daughter in kind of a Princess Bride sense. I see. Um, so in the future, he's, you know, telling the story to his daughter and it's very Princess Bride in that she's not really that interested at first, but as the movie progresses and he stops in the story, she wants to know what happens next. And then when you're dealing with the past, when you're looking at these kids as they go through all these really wacky gimmicks and scenes from trying to find a missing retainer in the Mall of America to... <laughs> you know, selling wreaths to old people trying to win a Nintendo entertainment system from their their Boy Scout troop. Uh, there's just a lot of really wacky things. And the past is more like a Christmas story put together with a holiday episode of the the Goldbergs, for okay. those who are familiar with, with that series. So this is set in Minnesota, I take it, if they're at Mall of America. This is set in northern Illinois. Okay, um, okay. I might have misspoke. It's it's a suburb of Chicago. I sure it's they go to Amo. I got you. I got you. But what I'm getting at is it's in the north, so there's snow. I mean, it feels and looks like a Christmas movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's snow and snowball fights and King of the Mountain where the kids get thrown off snow. I mean, it's it's definitely set and looks and feels like a legit Christmas movie. I just realized that if you are a young person, a teenager or so right now, and you watch this movie, it will be like me as a teenager watching Christmas Story. Enough time has elapsed that the late 80s, to kids, to, 
to, to teenagers or tweens now seems like so long ago. Right. And it's, it's got that, that same vibe that stranger things had and a lot of the similar, you know, like synth techno soundtrack and right. You know, it's, it's just a very eighties movie. They, they captured the essence of that, that late decade with, with parents being scared of video games, making kids violence and all the kids wanting a Nintendo and going crazy to try to get one. They, they capture that really well. All right. So 8-Bit Christmas, hilarious, good times, unforgivable, not hilarious, but well worth our time. Absolutely. And Unforgivable is on uh, Netflix in December. 8-Bit Christmas is on HBO Max now. Right. You can boot it up right after this review and watch it yourself. All right. What do we have to look forward on our TV screens or in movie theaters for the next week? So the, the two big movies coming out this weekend, I know it's a little strange since it's a holiday week and some movies come out on, on uh, Wednesday, some right. are coming out later. Um, but Encanto is this uh, new Disney movie, new cartoon that's come out, uh, set in Colombia about a family that everybody seems to have some kind of magical ability except for the main girl who I don't think has any powers and the story follows her adventure. Um, and then there... Uh, of course, it's House of Gucci, which is Ridley Scott's, I think it's Ridley Scott's new film about the the Gucci empire. And it's got Lady Gaga and Adam Driver. And just, it's supposed to be the other big, big hit this week. Al Pacino. I mean, it's... Um, Al Pacino. And Lady Gaga, just from the commercials I've seen, looks fierce and amazing. Right. It looks like it's going to be a pretty intense movie and she's going to be you know, a razor blade in it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Courtney Lanning's film reviews for Unforgivable and 8-Bit Christmas can be found in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette's Friday edition of the paper. Courtney, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for having me. Sounds good. At KUAF, we love how our listeners are helping their neighbors each and every day. And we love letting you know about who's needing that help. Through the Community Spotlight series, you've heard from so many nonprofit organizations every morning. Here's a bit of discussion with Elizabeth Gray, working with suicide prevention in our community. So I first started as a freshman in college. I had lost a couple of friends, unfortunately, to suicide. And I have a couple of family members that live with lived experience. And I wanted to help make a difference and help show that we're not alone in this in this fight and that there's things we can do in the community and that just there's more people affected by it than we know. Elizabeth Gray, who put on the Out of the Darkness Walk earlier this year in hopes of raising awareness and funding for suicide prevention. Leading up to Giving Tuesday on November 30th, we'll be revisiting moments when your help made a big difference in our community in the past year. KUAF Public Radio, Local Matters. This is Ozarks at Large. Pastor Clint Schneckloth is back with us for another book recommendation. This time, he's offering work from a familiar author, J.R.R. Tolkien. The book is The Nature of Middle-Earth and provides a thorough investigation of the setting for many of the writer's works. And Clint says those works extend far beyond the most well-known, like The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. In a way... um those two aren't even central to what Tolkien thought he was doing. Um, the whole time that he was writing those, he was at work on this bigger thing, which was the development of Middle Earth as a whole. Mm -hmm. And 
he was focused in terms of what you might read. He was focused on the writing this a collection called the Silmarillion. I have heard of this. Yes, you've With, told me about this. Yeah, which is kind of like if you wanted to have a Bible for a whole like fantasy universe. You know, that's what the Silmarillion mm-hmm. is. But he created and wrote even more than that. Um, and so, like, the biggest thing that you can get, so if you've got some, like, person that's a Tolkien fan on your um, Christmas list and you really want to, like, amaze them, what you would do is you would buy the the History of Middle-Earth boxed set, which oh. is about 4,000 pages of material. Okay. Um, it's the That's the whole history of Middle-Earth and all the lore and all the... Mm. Etc. Right. Well, uh, that's because he developed a cosmology, you know, like the mm-hmm. the got the pantheon of cre- creatures and a whole history of Middle Earth that includes like a whole kind of backstory, etc. Um, and then he developed the languages that the different um, races or cultures spoke, and he actually created whole languages. Synthetic languages. Wow. You know, there's, there's like, and, and not just one, like there's, right. t- there's, there's ancient Elvish and then there's more modern Elvish. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, I mean, we're talking about like major creation. And so the, he, he was still working on that at, on that at the time of his death. The, the ones who, that had been tied up the most because they'd been, you know, with a bow and, and were really completed would be The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings because they marketed those during his lifetime as like stories right. to read and to tell. The Silmarillion was still uncompleted his death because he was always trying to decide what parts, you know, would come in. But then after he died, um, his son, Christopher Tolkien, took over the uh, the state and which at uh, this point is becoming a, a very valuable estate oh yeah already during his lifetime yeah, yeah right um, but the um, what's really fascinating is you might you you could make a rather solid argument that the one thing as or more amazing than Tolkien's original creation was Christopher Tolkien's stewardship of that because he devoted his career to organizing and slowly publishing mm-hmm. all this creation that his father had done. And so, uh, like, if you look in here, you can see um, this is the, what I would just mention to you, the history of Middle-earth, the, the whole, that's the whole box set there. So it's like things like the Book of Lost Tales and then, um, like... Uh, it, it's it's almost too much for 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 most people to want to have to pay attention to it in depth unless you're a total geek. Except that if you watch any of the movies, you get a lot of this because the movie makers included more lore than's in the books themselves. Well, they had several long movies, yes. so you you could insert right. So anyone who has watched the movies has actually gotten exposure to some different parts of this over the course of watching the films. That's more than what's in those original books. Well, this one, and so then what they've done is they've published like the Book of Lost Tales. They published Unfinished Tales and and different things like that. This one is um, The Nature of Middle-Earth. 
And one of the reasons I find it especially fascinating is that it includes stuff about the metaphysics. So like the like religion, mm. what's mm. the theology of Middle Earth? Because again, what a lot of people don't know is that although Tolkien intentionally bracketed Christianity or really any religion from within Middle Earth and the novels that you've read, the entire thing has a Catholic ethos. Huh. Rome, you know, he was a Roman Catholic. Right. And he thought of the whole project as being Catholic. Okay. In the in the big sense. And so he did periodically write about that and like why he decided to um, not bring it in or to, or to, to bring it in. Um, but you also get in here then some fascinating stuff like I'll just give you an example. Here's part two, body, mind, and spirit. The subsections include beauty and goodness, gender and sex, Eldar and hands, fingers, and numerals, hair, beards. Wow. So the nature of Middle-earth, it's not necessarily prose. It's like a reference book? Right. It is prose. Okay. But it's not a, it's not story. It's not narrative. Well, there are some parts that are narrative. So there's a couple of chapters that are like little miniature narratives, like, um, like, like what's the relationship between Galadriel and Celeborn, for example? And then there's a little section in there okay. that he wrote. A lot of these were, um, it, well, so I'll give if you if you go to the beginning of any particular section. You'll see that what the what this editor has done because this is one of the only volumes that's not edited by Christopher Tolkien, who is now also passed. Yeah. It's edited by Carl Hostetter, and the way he introduces this is he he'll say like these two brief texts are written in black nib pen on two torn half sheets of two different Merton College Weekly battle bills. So what he's doing. J.R.R. Tolkien at this point is he's just kind of coming up with ideas and putting them here. He's not necessarily writing this all chronologically mm-hmm. or just as inspiration hits him about the hair or the theology. He writes it down somewhere. And so now they're trying to put it all together. Right. And, and And so – and then you can see – the it's the like the movie show rather than te- than tell, but you can see it like the like just take the beards topic as an example. You remember that Strider is beardless, which is a mark of that. What you find out later is he's highborn, and is this you know ro- right. he's royalty, and that that race he's descended from that race that's like older and they live longer, and they're beardless, as opposed to like dwarves always have. Beard. So this is deep backstory uh-huh. is what we're getting here. Right. This is okay. Yeah. But for some reason, I found this one to be even more compelling as a read than some of the unfinished tales. So hmm. some of the other ones are like supposedly supposed to be like fables and myths and whatever that are part of the I mean it's pretty funny, but he created fables and myths for a fable. Right? Wow, right. Like these are the stories right. in that world that they told each other, except for that world is itself a story. We often use the term world building when we talk about fantasy novel or or just any sort of, you know, multiple volume work of fiction. This is world building. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And he was driven all by uh, one basic impulse that Tolkien had, which was he, that's what he did as a scholar. 
you know, he studied um, the a, a lot of these ancient texts mm-hmm. from the from northern climates in particular. So he studied like uh, Finnish mythology and the Icelandic sagas and all that. And he espe- he loved the Icelandic sagas. He loved the Finnish sagas. He thought that the uh, stories from his own culture weren't broad or and deep and interesting enough, so he decided to create create, his, create them. Pastor Clint Schneckloth is the lead pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. He often stops by the Carver Center for Public Radio to suggest books for us. This time, he recommended The Nature of Middle-Earth by J.R.R. Tolkien and edited by Carl F. Hostetter. And just ahead on this Friday edition of our show, a book for young people who don't necessarily want to read. Max Greenfield talks about, I don't want to read this book, Next, Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973, with adventure gear and clothing for hiking, kayaking, and more. Pack Rat carries dog packs, life vests, and accessories for the furry family members, too. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. This is Ozarks at Large. Maybe you know a young person who's devoted to a certain author or a certain series of books or just books in general. But not all of us were avid readers when we were young, and there are certainly scores of other ways to spend our time. Max Greenfield, an actor familiar to TV viewers as Dave in the current CBS sitcom The Neighborhood or as Schmidt in the successful sitcom New Girl, has created a new book for young, reluctant readers called I don't want to read this book. We reached him by Zoom last week and asked if he ever considered not using that title, which might not necessarily be a marketer's dream. No, not not a one. Maybe that was a mistake. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a reluctant reader? Big time. Big are you, time. Are you still? Yeah, for sure. I know when I get a script as an actor, um, if I get through the first 10 pages... It's clearly a masterpiece. <laughs> this is obviously written for children because some some children, you know, we, we hear the stories of the authors who were bookworms as children. Not all of us were. So this is kind of sort of a family gathering that reading can be okay, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, the idea for the book came from uh, my own experiences as a parent at first where I'd go into my children's room and try we would try to read a book before bed and we would go through all the books and they'd say i don't want to read this book i don't want to read that book and then this is why and and a half hour later you're like well we've read nothing and it's time to go to bed (laughs) and so when the idea of writing a children's book came about uh i said well if i was going to do that it would be called i don't want to read this book and it would be all the reasons why you know a child doesn't want to read the book. And at the end of the book, the child will have read a book. Um, and so that was sort of the the initial idea. And then when uh, I pitched that idea and surprisingly Penguin was like, we want to make it. I then, had, I then had the daunting task. I was like, Oh my God, I have to write this now. And uh, it tapped into my own experience as a reluctant reader and, and, and I got to sort of write it with my kids a little bit and we talked about it and it was a really became like a really wonderful conversation starter about reading in general and 
the process of, of learning to read and how certain kids are, are really incredible readers and, and voracious readers and how that isn't a sign of intelligence. And, and it became like a really wonderful uh, conversation that, that it, it then became, um, which I think all children's books really are, is conversation starters. I'm wondering what were some of the what are some of the reasons you would hear from your children that they didn't want to read that book or they didn't want to participate in a reading of a certain book? Well, what's great is you know the initial answers to those questions. What was funny because we wrote it during the uh, during the lockdown, um, and so one we were in homeschool, so we were having our own experience with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, which was worst case scenario. But so I was really like talking to my daughter on, on about learning and how she learns and how I learned and what my experience was. And, uh, and when I started to write the book, you know, my daughter and her friends in the neighborhood would go on these bike rides and they would always come back to our house and we'd sit on the front lawn and I would read them drafts of the book. And they would give me notes. And there was a couple reluctant readers in the group. And I'd be like, what do you not like about reading? And the way that they would articulate it um, at that age was like, oh, it's just so many words. You know, was, that was the, the overwhelming theme was words. And they're just there being too many of them. And I was like, I get it. Um, but, you know, it was, it was always words or like, oh, I just feel like I could be doing so many other things right now. And just sitting down and reading, um, and and so it starts there. But then it gets to a place where you're like, where the conversation gets to a place where you know you you sit down and 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 you start talking about. Well, is it hard for you to concentrate on the book? Hmm. And do you do you spend a lot of time, you know? trying to read the book and as you're trying to read the book are you not retaining anything that you're that you're that you're reading because it sounds pretty good but i can see like this is an effort for you and and ironically you know not only will my daughter but myself as well when when we listen to audiobooks or when she listens to me reading she retains everything, just like I retain everything on an audiobook. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, I see how this, like, this is a better, this works better for me this way. I love that because uh, we all are different anyway. I'm wondering if being a reluctant reader, it's easier. And of course, we should point out, you mentioned words. There aren't just words in this book. There are illustrations. I want to get to that in a minute. But I'm wondering if being a reluctant reader, self-confessed reluctant reader, makes it a different process for creating a book. Like you kind of know what, I don't know if pitfalls is the right word, but you kind of know what some of the hurdles might be. A hundred percent. Well, it's really with um, any piece of creativity that you're creating, any content that you're creating. Um, you know, when, when it's true to your own experience it's easy and you know you you know exactly what to do at every turn and then it's just about crafting it and making it fun um 
but you know exactly that writing this book was not uh, not a difficult process for me. Let's just say that. <laughs> Finally, um, there are illustrations. Tell us about uh, your your illustrator here. Yeah, we were so lucky. Um, what writing a children's book is is such a was such a new experience to me, and one of the most interesting parts of it was you write this thing, um, which happened to be something that I felt so proud of and was so excited by, and then all of a sudden you give that over to an illustrator and they create their own very separate thing with it. Um, and so you just, fingers crossed, that comes back <laughs> your way in a positive way. Um, but Mike did such a beautiful job with this. And I mean, he exceeded every expectation that I thought the book could be and what it was going to look like. And the one thing he did so beautifully, which... I was hoping that he would do um, and just excelled at was I really wanted the book to be readable. You know, there isn't a main character. There's no paintings in this of like landscapes or bunnies or whatever it is. <laughs> like this is, it's a, it's a book that's meant to be read. Um, and he managed to keep it very readable, but in a, and add so much fun to it. And I think the words he emphasized make it so much fun to like dive into those words and to play with them. Um, and so I just, I, I think I, I, I could not be happier with how the thing came out. Okay. The two most important reviews, your children, what do they think of the final product? Well, they're biased. <laughs> they like it though, right? I mean, they're biased for it. Yeah. I think their mom told them to be nice to me about it. Um, cause I know they're sick of it and sick of hearing about it. Um, so they, they're still, my son, I actually is my son. What was very cool is now that the book, that we have physical copies of the book, which I didn't have until recently. Um, my son was able to take, he's six. He was able to take it to his school and take it to his teacher and the teacher read it in front of the class and, you know, I think he felt really proud and he felt some ownership over that. Um, and that was that was a very cool moment. So it's now his favorite book. Um, but he's had his own personal experience, which is going to be different from most people's. Um, and and Lily, like, you know, I think Lily was right in on the money age wise when we wrote the book. She's a little bit past it now. Um, but still, but it is one of these books that like the idea of it is just still really fun. And I've, I've heard, I've gotten responses from fifth and sixth graders who still like, Oh, love that book because they, because they're at a place in school where it's not about the process of reading the book. It's about not wanting to read the book that they're being asked to read. Yeah. And I think we can all relate to that. Yes. <laughs> I, I keep saying the adult version of this book is going to be called, I don't want to read this email. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Uh, the name of the book is, I don't want to read this book. Max Greenfield, congratulations. Thank you so much. And uh, happy holidays. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Max Greenfield's new book is, I don't want to read this book. And it features illustrations from Mike Lowry. We talked by Zoom last week.
The Black Action Collective is partnering with many community groups to host the warm-up Fayetteville Coat Drive from December 1st through the 31st. New and good condition coats, hats, gloves, scarves, blankets will be collected. That will then go to Fayetteville Public School uh, students, Seven Hills Homeless Center, and New Beginnings, Northwest Arkansas. The Black Action Collective urges you to take a deep look in your closet, see what might be available. To find out more about the process and to review the drop-off locations, BACNWA.org. Habitat for Humanity of Washington County is hoping to build three new homes in 2022. Habitat for Humanity thinks everyone deserves a decent place to live. Their goal before the new year, to raise enough money to build the next home in Washington County. If you'd like to know more, you can go to HabitatWashingtonCoAR.org. And the exhibition, Architecture's Arboretum, will be on display through January 21st in the Fred and Mary Smith Exhibition Gallery on the University of Arkansas campus. Architecture's Arboretum explores the use of trees in architectural design throughout history. Admission to this exhibit, absolutely free. The gallery is open weekdays from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. If you'd like to know more, fayjones.uark.edu. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Kibler. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can always listen to us online at KUAF.com. Timothy Dennis produced today's edition of our program. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. If you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, why not subscribe to the absolutely free podcast version of our daily show? It's available from any of the major podcast distributors. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll be back with you Sunday morning at 9 for the next edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. Back Monday to start another week of daily editions of Ozarks at Large every day at noon and 7. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Commerce Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Have a safe weekend, and we will talk with you again very soon.